2: Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State, but please call me Mike. Today I'll be speaking with Mitchell L. Hammond, an assistant professor at the University of Victoria in beautiful British Columbia. He is the author of Epidemics in the Modern World, out with the University of Toronto Press in 2020. A Chinese language edition will be published in October of this year, 2021, with Chongqing Publishing and Media. Dr. Hammond studied at Yale, where he earned a BA in political science and an MA in religious history, before getting another MA and his PhD in European history at the University of Virginia. His dissertation was entitled The Origins of Civic Healthcare in Early Modern Germany. He has published several articles and book chapters on the intersection of medicine and religion in 16th and 17th century Germany. Professor Hammond, welcome to New Books in History.
1: Thanks, Mike. Glad to be with you.
2: So um normally I do an introduction explaining to um the listeners uh why this episode's book is so relevant and they they should listen to it and and, and read it um but as we're speaking we're um uh, moving into 14 months of the covid pandemic so that doesn't really seem necessary instead I'll just say wow hey good timing on publishing such an excellent book on the history of epidemic disease and um, I, I really do uh, think very highly of this book. And I, I, it's one of the books that I've been recommending to my colleagues as sort of a primer for um, getting a, a baseline knowledge for studying disease. Because, again, so many of my colleagues are now, uh, in the context of COVID, having to work in the history of disease into their classes. But before we get into the book itself, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian of healthcare in early modern Germany? <sighs>
1: Well, I, I kind of came into, uh, I guess, history of disease and medicine, uh, uh, kind of, you know, by accident because, um, I was, uh, in my first year of, uh, PhD, uh, grad school at UVA, uh, a professor offered a course on, um, bubonic plague in Europe and there just weren't that many grad courses to take. And I, I wasn't particularly interested, um, but I, I did take it and I, I, I was hooked and, um. Uh, it, it was apparent to me pretty soon that uh, there was always going to be an audience uh, and an interest in medicine and in in diseases something that we can all we can all connect with and so I stuck with medical topics uh, first in in French history and then in, in German history and focusing on German imperial cities and um, I've taught the uh, a course on epidemics on, on and off Uh since, uh, since I left grad school. So it's a topic I've, I've kind of revisited from time to time over, over a while.
2: Yeah. I bet your Dean is happy that course was already on the books. Uh, when COVID <laughs> <did>. <laughs> yeah. We've been, uh, uh, I've been developing a new course, uh, uh to teach at my institution because we, we had not had this history, um, of the ep- epidemic disease prior to this. Um, so when when did you decide to leave the you know <laughs> excuse me but sort of narrow confines of early modern Germany and take on the larger uh, subject of this book that is ostensibly a world history of disease and it is it is truly a global scope.
1: Well, I'd, I you know I'd, I'd uh, taught the course for a while just um, off off and on for I guess close to a decade and then and then it was really I guess it was e- Ebola in two thousand and fourteen that just uh, even though the The hysteria about that disease in some respects, at least you know in in North America outstripped anything that happened. but that that got me thinking in a more focused way. Um, and in part, I, I wanted to you know have something at the introductory level that I could teach and that in this book being something that I could teach from. But I also got increasingly interested in some of these you know issues of of how how we write our histories and also about how, uh, scholarship from different arenas can be can be integrated, and there is a lot of really exciting work being done um, uh, uh, reconstructing ancient diseases, understanding ancient pathogens. There were exciting conversations about how to write this history. How do we take our our, our modern scientific conceptions and apply them in some cases to the distant past, and so it was a really interesting set of um, method and historiographical questions that I wanted to pursue uh, alongside having having an intro textbook.
2: Yeah, yeah. Is is there any other any other sort of underlying importance for the history of the uh, the the study of the history of disease to you? Is there well, sort of yeah. a larger philosophical meaning?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think that. We tend to think, at least, um, at least I did at the very beginning of this. I tended to think of epidemics as something that were that was in our distant past, uh, something that that happened to people, you know, before modern medicine got got really effective. And our, our experiences with COVID have, have kind of shown that that's not the case. But but even before that, I was I was thinking about how how today's diseases they they show us what life is like for us as moderns and for us as people who are in whatever social and Configurations are going to succeed, you know, modernity, and and the fact that a lot of our, especially our infectious pandemic diseases, they are they are direct consequences, uh, they're outgrowths of of integral features of, of modern life, and so they they're things that tell us about who we are right now on a fundamental level, and um, also. Uh, just the way that diseases and the way that the way that bodies and health and sickness work—I mean, how people explain these things uh, to themselves and to others—these are these are keys into how people understand the forces that kind of animate their lives and, and what the really significant underlying forces governing existence are. And so, uh, whereas in in a in less secular times, you know, there were all sorts of divinely motivated explanations for disease. We now have various kinds of naturalistic, but also sociological explanations of disease. So it's our way of understanding uh, how the world works, and in the case of people who challenge science, it's our way of uh, of arguing and sorting out what our underlying premises of our of our social lives together are. So I think it's a really interesting and rewarding set of issues to to you know pursue. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And one of the one of the reasons I study disease is I find that they, they offer great opportunities to look at stress tests of Absolutely. social and political systems, um, which sort of leads me into my next question for you. Um, how, how do you approach the study of disease? How, and um, maybe how do you balance um, the specifics of the disease, its cycles and ideology um, versus other human contexts, the political, the social, economic, cultural contexts?
1: Yeah that that's a that's a question well as as you know very well that's the question that uh people love to chase around in in this in this history and uh you know can we take our take our ideas from today our modern reckonings with diseases and then apply them retrospectively to the past and can we really say that our that our plague for example is the same as plague was in the you know in the 6th century or in the 14th century and I don't really have a good answer, except that I, I just try and wear more than one hat. I I put on a I put on a science hat and I learn as much as I can about uh, about our current reckonings with the disease. And scientists are usually pretty good at acknowledging their limits as well in terms of the current understandings. And and then and then I go back and I, I put on put on the the different hat of someone from the 14th century, say a doctor or a person. And I just try to put myself in, in the place of where where they would be in terms of understanding how how the disease worked. And uh, sometimes there are gaps. We can't always we can't always know um, exactly what what a disease was. And even if we have some pretty hard genetic evidence, for example, in the case of plague, that still doesn't give us uh, all what that we'd want to know about how individuals understood that, that that disease. And so there has to be just a measure of, of, of respect, you know, and appreciation for science, for sure. Um, but then you have to pay attention to how concepts changed over time. Uh, you know, tuberculosis is a great example of that. There were tons of different term, terms used for tuberculosis like diseases and you can't always know. And sometimes you have to be comfortable with that with that uncertainty and that ambiguity while, you know, maintaining the basic stream of, of the of the argument and and not asserting that every time period has its own diseases that are completely different, because that ultimately is is self-defeating and it's probably not really accurate. So I just try to be, you know, wear wear different hats to 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 get at it as best I can. And
2: do you knock on the door of colleagues and in, uh, in other divisions at your university, uh, uh, talk to the biologist, talk to the epidemiologist, talk to, uh, to others? Yeah,
1: I, I did. I did from this, uh, I did for this book and they, they're, you know, n- noted in, in my preface. I had, had several colleagues. I consulted uh, several at UVic and then a, a, at some other places as well, you know, read chapters for me, um, you know, schooled me on some of the finer points, but, it also has to be said, though, that that we have such an abundance of of really great scientific literature at our fingertips. It's it's all the the, the scientific literature now is all online, and uh, there's a premium placed on making things accessible across audiences. And so, it, it's really possible now. I think, in a way that that wasn't possible even fairly recently for for you know lay people like me to go in there and you know educate ourselves and. Uh, and, and uh, you know learn what can be learned, but then also check in with the real experts, um, not just to make sure stuff is accurate, but just also to make sure that it's framed in the right way and that you're getting at the right issues. and that uh, you know sometimes they'll come up with things that are really important from a modern standpoint in terms of the, the social repercussions as well. Scientists can be really broad-minded in ways that I think humanists <laughs> humanists don't always appreciate.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my father was faculty at the university of Hawaii medical school. Oh uh, yeah. in um, uh-huh. I- immunology.
1: So oh, yeah. when, oh, when I well. was in graduate school,
2: I, I had, I had a ringer. <laughs> I could oh, yeah. call him up and, uh, and bounce ideas off him. And he read some of my work and really, really helped out some of my thinking and actually pushed me towards, um, making disease more important, uh, in my analysis of, uh, colonial Vietnam.
1: Oh gosh, that's perfect. But, yeah. But and I, immunology too. Boy, that, that, that's a tough area to get into. So.
2: Yeah. yeah and I, but I, it really taught me a lot of humility too, To Um, and, and not to be afraid to ask, ask experts for questions. Um, now, fortunately with this book, Epidemics in the Modern World, um, historians now have a great resource to, that we can turn to. So we don't have to, I don't have to bug the busy scientists. Um, And again, I think this book will serve as an excellent primer for um, our colleagues who, especially in the time of COVID, really need to work in the history of disease into their standard American history survey or world history or Western Civ, what have you. Um, Let's see. uh, Would you please um, give us a you know, a little bit of this, the scientific primer. So could you talk about the distinction between a disease being endemic, epidemic and pandemic? Um,
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Uh, To to some degree, it depends on depends on the audience and kind of what kind of conversation you're having. Because uh, especially where the term uh, epidemic is concerned, uh, uh, epidemiologists, so the so so the actual disease specialists, they will have statistical thresholds. um, And when when a disease rises above a certain baseline. Um, you know, and depending on the circumstances over a particular time interval, then then a disease will be classified as an epidemic, and then that can uh, that can trigger certain certain you know announcements or certain things certain things happening. Um, the, the other terms are, are always a bit fuzzy, and one, one thing I always like to point out is in in this connection is that. Is that um, one of our earliest uses? I, I guess the the very earliest use of the term epidemics that we have is from um, is from the ancient Greek uh, a, a work entitled Epidemics by uh, a writer a we would say a Hippocratic writer um, someone writing in the Hippocratic tradition who wrote a set of case studies called Epidemics um, describing diseases and symptoms. But the funny thing about it is that. That what this person was was actually describing was was diseases that were that were endemic. They were the diseases that were prevailing in a in a particular region, um, and that that corresponds more closely to, to the way that we use the word endemic today. Those are diseases that that are uh, sort of in, in embedded uh, somehow, um, uh, chronic uh, or persisting in a in a particular population at a at a certain level. Um, so there's a bit of a play between the words endemic and and, and epidemic over over time, um, and then pandemic. Uh, I guess for a pandemic, it's like, well, what's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? And I, you know, you, you sort of you know it when you see it. <laughs> you know, pand- pandemic is like, you know, oh, it's it's across the continent or it's across the entire planet in the case of in the case of COVID. And the the only other thing I'd say about that is that that really. Um, it's hard to really talk about any disease being being a being a pandemic with very few exceptions, you know, until until the 19th century, because until the 19th century, you didn't have uh, a global transport mechanisms, uh, steamships and railways and so on, that could transport pathogens and you know create infectious disease you know uh, episodes worldwide. They couldn't couldn't do that until you had that mass transport, and so. Um, although there were continent-wide uh, uh, outbreaks of, of plague, and perhaps even Eurasia and Africa-wide, uh, you know, plague pandemics in earlier times, our, our modern notion of a pandemic of stuff being everywhere um, it didn't really take shape until the 19th century. Um, and now, our, our world with with COVID, we have this very heightened sense of pandemic because of our instantaneous communication. A pandemic is multiple disease events happening all over the place at the same time. And so that sense of simultaneity and that, that experience of being in a pandemic, that's something that, that we can have in a way that really wasn't available to earlier societies uh, until, until really a pretty recent time. So, so our, our idea of what a pandemic is, 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 is changing and, and our criteria for it as, as modern or postmodern people is changing. Uh, you know, you and you and I can look at COVID dashboards, you know, and look at our disaster dashboards and have that sense of instantaneous uh, experience. And we can zoom in on different parts of the world if we wish. You know, oh, what's the uh, how many cases in Croatia this week? You know that, that we can we can do that if we like. Um, so we have an idea of a pandemic that already is quite different um, in our in our experience of it than what even would have been possible 20 years ago.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really profound, like, uh, important historical context that this, the pandemic notion really is a a consequence of modernity, um, both in terms of sort of understanding the world, but also in the basic infrastructure that uh, is created. Again, as you said, in the late nineteenth century. Um, let's do. Let's go over a few more terms before we really get into the book. Um, how about distinctions between viruses and bacterial diseases?
1: Well, in terms of in terms of how they're how they're maybe different from each other, I guess in terms of what they do. Um, well, uh, I guess one just in terms of how they how they behave, their their behavior creates some interesting uh, differences. So so viruses uh, viruses need a host. Viruses can't don't survive on their own, and so viruses have to be have to be spread from one organism to another. And I mean sometimes these organisms can be very small because viruses can inhabit bacteria. But, um, but viruses can't, can't float around on their own the way that bacteria can. And so this then will have consequences for, um, for uh, uh, you know, bacteria such as, uh, such as the, the Vibrio that cause cholera, for example, which um, oftentimes hangs out very happily in certain kinds of crustaceans and certain kinds of plankton, but it also can motor itself around with its little tail, its little flagellum. And so that gives the, the 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 dynamic of the spread of of uh, of this bacteria a different di- a different kind of dynamic than would be would be the case with a with, with a virus. Um, and then another just really kind of clear cut difference that has a lot of public health consequences is that bacteria can be targeted with antibiotics. So uh, you can have a uh, uh, microbe attacking or microbe eating. Uh, um, you know other other organisms so penicillin originally a mold um and then uh, all of the uh all of the mycin <clears throat> excuse me uh, mycin uh antibiotics such as streptomycin or erythromycin these are stuff that we take all the time those are uh, originally derived from soil microbes so these are microbes that that go around happily chomping on you, you know chomping on uh, uh bacteria uh, just in, you know, as their as, as organisms. So once those, once those antibiotics then were harnessed by, by humans, that, that then can also though engender certain kinds of dynamics when there is a evolutionary arms race between the bacteria and the antibiotics. And so this is, uh, has been the case with, uh, uh, with tuberculosis where you have drug resistant tuberculosis, you have, uh, Drug-resistant Staphylococcus infections, uh, which are uh, increasingly the bane of many hospital uh, hospital settings, um, so you know something that's that's uppermost in mind for all sorts of care facilities. That was the big problem in care facilities before COVID um, was was staff or MRSI, these different kinds of uh, of disease-resistant microbes. So 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 those are some of the those are some of the things that 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 uh, you know affect the landscape. Um, and, uh, you know, some viruses, uh, some viruses evolve faster than some bacteria do, but it's not a hard and fast thing. And, you know, most viruses are a lot smaller than most bacteria, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting.
2: And so again, we're recording in March, uh, 2021. So now in the New York times, when I look at it on my iPhone, I'm seeing both COVID uh, cases and COVID deaths, but I'm also starting to see reports on vaccinations, and that's the, yes. the new figure that we're watching. So, could you say a few words on um, uh, the difference between inoculation and vaccination, and also perhaps um, pharmaceutical uh, prophylactics? Um, and, and also, very quickly, I mean, this is covered in the book, but how how was vaccination developed historically?
1: Well, um, as just as you were saying, um, so so vaccination uh, was uh, it's it's credited um, not to the first person who who did vaccinations, but to the person who who really attempted to to systematically or somewhat more systematically prove that they worked. This was Edward Jenner working in the uh, 17 after 1795. Um, in a, in a rural, you know, English, English uh, community. And he basically took uh, what was already a a well-known remedy that had been practiced uh, around the world in many different ways. And that was inoculation. And these were all different ways to try and and encounter smallpox, which was worldwide a known, a known killer, uh, especially of children and uh, very scary and disfiguring for people who who didn't die. Um, inoculation was basically using a weakened form of smallpox matter um, in order to uh, induce resistance. And so what you did was is you, that you took smallpox matter, either ground up pustules or a little bit of the, the uh, lymph or the, the, the infectious fluid, and you would introduce it into a person's body, sometimes through scratches Sometimes uh, through a tube and blowing it up through someone's nose, which is what they did in China. Um, but was the idea, the Ottoman
2: w- Empire, where they would scratch the skin and, and yes. put the scab yes. in there. The uh, the so, Ottoman so-
1: Empire did the did the uh, did the scratching, did the scratching method, and that's what was done in in England as well. The English eventually began to use a tool called a lancet uh, to to sort of prick and to introduce. Uh, introduce material that way. So people didn't understand the dynamics of, of, of how immunity worked. They didn't understand, they, no one had seen the smallpox virus, of course, but what they were trying to do was to take a weakened version of this, this poison or this sickness and to use it to, uh, in hopes that the body would fight it off and then the body would, would be resistant thereafter and uh so this folk remedy had evolved and uh it was introduced into into England um the the English upper class apparently got a hold of it somewhat after uh, other people did but by the 1750s this was well known practice everywhere in, in 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 England uh Jenner heard about people using instead of actual smallpox material using uh using something else using cowpox material and uh Jenner actually had a very elaborate explanation of where this this other poison came from, Um, but uh, he ultimately uh, wanted to see if cowpox, which was a much milder disease than smallpox, if if this could possibly induce uh, the same response that using smallpox did.
2: Because and, these were diseases that presented in a similar manner. Yes, they both they both created just, pustules related.
1: Yeah, exactly. They both created they both uh, did pust, you know created pustules and had this kind of topical uh, eruption. And there had been other other uh, sort of very limited uh, trials of this. There had been a, there was a guy named Benjamin Jesty who had tried it. I think in the 1760s. There had been uh, even people elsewhere who had done it. So Jenner wasn't the absolute first person. And he learned, and he was motivated to do this also because of, of local lore around milkmaids, uh, who got, got cowpox all the time, but never got smallpox. And so there was a lot of, you know, suppositional thinking. And so, you know, let's try this. And, uh, Jenner, Jenner tried this and was very, pretty meticulous in his experiments, even though he really didn't, um, you you know, understand how, how, uh, How immune responses worked at all, he wasn't really thinking about immune responses uh, as we would think of it today uh, at all. He was thinking in terms of a, you know, one kind of poison having a certain impact on the body, and then different people played around with um, different kinds of people that played around with attenuated smallpox, and so Jenner, Jenner thought, well, maybe cowpox is kind of like weak smallpox. So that was kind of the, the, the level of thinking. And, um, you know, sometimes you'll see articles and this is, I guess, the, the kind of article one wishes to avoid or not draw on too much where you, you'll see things like, you know, uh, Jenner, father of immunology, that sort of thing. And it's like, well, not really. That, that's not really true at all to, to how he was thinking because um, he, had, he had a whole other theory that was based on the, the farmyard environment in terms of how this all happened.
2: Yeah well, there's there's so much uh hagiography yes. and and mythology around some of these uh medical figures I mean it, you talk about a uh, a field of history with a lot of great men and history moments um, that's right and it, it, to their some of moran and and I've benefited tremendously from their work but but it the it seems like the history of medicine really gravitates towards that in a way that sometimes in in more popular writing can
0: today. That's shopify.com slash system. Again, create this sort of mythology. that's really
1: true. And it's uh and, and that owes its owes its origins in some way to the fact that the history of medicine evolved as a separate discipline and it evolved as kind of an outgrowth of medical schools. And it was deemed at one point to be useful and fruitful for for medical schools. But then it, it does lend itself to that kind of you know, uh, pr- professionalization and creating consolidating a, a, a professional identity, and and for me, uh, that that uh, thinking about how does one write about this and you know invite a broader you know view of it, um, you know it creates an issue. Sometimes it's it's just an issue of narrative. It's like you don't have to start with the with the great men, even if they are important. If you just simply by virtue of starting in another place, creating your narrative based around a different. Person or a different context that leads you to different questions, even if you ultimately then also talk about the the kind of innovations that that really are relevant and worth worth knowing about.
2: So, with uh, with vaccination, um, this brings up some important questions on the morality of developing and testing vaccines. Um, how was this done historically? Uh, where was it done, and who? Historically, who served as the proverbial guinea pigs in some of this uh, this early vaccine history?
1: Yeah, well, in terms of the in terms of the people, in terms of uh, medical experimentation, more more broadly, um, you know, a, a lot of it has has to do with. I mean, there, there's there's different uh, ki- kinds of criteria that come into play. Um, one one thing that People who are conducting the scientific investigations try to do is to have have controls to try and and, and to isolate and to uh, filter out as many variables as possible and so partly for that reason uh scientists uh traditionally not so much now but in the past gravitated towards uh enclosed populations so people who were living in uh people who are, you know, sometimes living in, in, in asylums or in hospitals or prisoners or also soldiers, um, all of these different groups of people, uh, what they have in common is that their their habits and their routines uh, can be controlled so that you can then conduct conduct your, your experiment. Uh, also, you know, in, in earlier times, um, there was, uh, I'd say there was a kind of transactional morality at work where where if um, where people who were who were receiving benefits from the state, um, if they were in some way under state control, um, they then were sort of higher up the line as as people who were eligible to be used for various kinds of of, of experimentation, and so th- this goes beyond you know vaccinations and experiments for medications to things like uh, to things like surgeries. Um, where charity patients who were receiving surgery, say in British voluntary hospitals, for example, um, if they were receiving this, you know, more or less free or deeply discounted medical treatment, they then would be expected to subject themselves to all kinds of of medical interventions or simply have their bodies be used as case material, or they could be examined by uh, by other doctors. And they were deemed to have ceded some of that control because the state stepped in to be the authority that that was enabling their existence in a certain way. So there was a kind of transaction that that then that then it moves into you know whoever the, the state uh, has subordinate to it that then uh, frequently aligned with who's being physically controlled and so so these things line up and so I think that a lot of the ethics around experimentation uh, you know revolve around who does the state control and whose habits, uh, wh- whose habits, you know, can 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 we control? And so it's laboratory constraints and and state constraints that, that kind of intersect together. And that's what was happening with uh, with uh, a lot of the, the trials for inoculation, for example. Inoculation was being tested before vaccination. Also, there were 18th century tests uh, of digitalis, uh, foxglove. Uh, digitalis is, is for uh, to to relieve uh, congestive heart failure. Um, and uh, and so uh, there would be poor patients that would be subjected to experiments uh, for this. So it's so it's it, it, that's where that's where I think some of the ethics come from. And I think it's um, you can tell from my uh, length of my response here, I'm quite interested in that. There's there's a few isolated you know instances in in France in the in the late later 18th century where they make passing reference to well, the state is sort of like your father and so by virtue of the state being your father in sort of this enlightenment reckoning your father can operate in terms of your in terms of your interests and benefits but also has a certain you know uh say over how your body is used so it's very interesting how this late enlightenment ethos kind of took shape and then continued on for another you know century and a half and in
2: in that next century and a half we see the development of european global empires Absolutely. Now the colonies can become sites of of testing, correct?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And that that's it's just the same. It was the same with uh, experiments uh, with uh, of of atoxyl, which was an arsenic based remedy that was tested extensively in in Africa uh, for for various things, um, uh, syphilis as well as uh, as well as sleeping sickness. Um, So 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 yeah, the, the the state steps in or the imperial power steps in and and asserts a kind of uh legitimacy and there's a kind of uh you know underlying it is this notion that we are bringing civilization in various forms to to various populations and if a few people are are hurt along the way well we're we're we're, um we're we're treating a, a lethal and dangerous disease here so you know there's a certain legitimacy that is asserted
2: right and without being caught too much in the trap of presentism um hundred years ago, uh, with the language barrier, with the power differential of colonial uh, state systems, and with the, the the racism inherent to the um, the era of a new imperialism, it really makes a mockery of notions of informed consent that we would abide by today. But oh again, yes, oh, yeah, that, that, is, that is a presentist perspective. Yeah, but nonetheless, it does. Does show some of the the, the moral uh, at. <laughs> Most diplomatically, I can say ambiguity regarding yes, the testing. Uh,
1: absolutely, that. there was no notion of of informed consent. And what what I find interesting is that there was a kind of a, a rationale that we would no longer accept today. But there was a a sort of quasi legal rationale for this. That, well, by in, in, to to speak again of the eighteenth century, you know, test subjects, you know, you, you're you're on the state support. You're receiving state support, and therefore you are, you know from a legal standpoint, you're kind of part of the state family and, and the state as your parental figure, then uh, asserts a certain a certain you know prerogative to control your body. And then if you look at statements made about uh, the parental, Dimensions of you know uh, assertions by imperial powers. You know, I have somebody like Woodrow Wilson writing about imperialism and about the the basis of state power in families. Well, that 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 assertion of of dad knows best. <laughs> um, you know that there there was some of that in in a sense that informed consent isn't necessarily uh, necessary in, in the same way because the state is asserting a certain role and that continues on for a very long time in an unchallenged way, uh, in spite of what we now recognize as the, the obvious power differentials. And, uh, I, I think I would say also just a measure of hypocrisy that was, uh, you know, self-serving, uh, dimensions of that too, for yep. sure.
2: And in, in your book, in the chapter on syphilis, you address these issues in regards to the Tuskegee, the infamous Tuskegee, uh, experiments and also the, the shorter, but, um, Really shocking experiments in Guatemala yes. that um, uh, were conducted by American physicians, correct?
1: Yes, yes, and uh, that's a great example. And in, in, in Tuskegee, um, they just watched people essentially be sick and uh, took took uh, substantial steps to avoid intervening. No one was actually infected with syphilis during the Tuskegee experiments. People sometimes thought they were, but they but they weren't. Whereas in Guatemala, just as you were saying these um, experiments in the 1940s, done by some of the same crew that oversaw the Tuskegee experiment, there they did actually infect over a thousand people um, with various um, sexually transmitted infections, uh, testing various remedies. And once again, it's, it's prisoners, it's vulnerable enclosed populations, um, and it's, it's not on uh, American soil. Because they, they knew that this wouldn't pass muster because there were already evolving, you know, ethical standards in, in the mid-20th century uh, before these became much more formalized beginning in the 1960s.
2: Yeah. Um, before we get into the book, just one more, one more uh, terminology question. Um, in many of the diseases you discuss, animals play a really crucial role. So, what are zoonoses, and what are some of the animals that serve as vectors in the spread of disease?
1: Well, yeah, the the term it's a Greek term, and it it was coined by uh, by Rudolf Virchow, who's a, a well known pathologist and and physician uh, in the in the eighteen fifties. And uh, yes, zoonoses are essentially diseases that originate in animals or other, other animals, humans being animals, and then make, make the jump into, into humans. So zoonotic infections are, are animal infections that then uh, uh, evolve or, or can, you know, just infect both animals and humans. And so um, I guess the, you know, one, one example... Uh, in terms of in terms of a vector, our number one vector, our most lethal critter on the planet, is the mosquito. Um, mosquitoes then can can harbor uh, various uh, uh, pathogens, including uh, especially malaria and yellow fever. Um, the the protozoa that causes malaria and the virus that, that causes yellow fever. And in in, in this instance, um, the you know the the mosquito actually is a is a part of the the life cycle of those uh, of those um, microbes and so and so it's part of the natural order of things that that those uh microbes inhabit mosquitoes and then go into another host whether it's uh in some cases not necessarily a human um fleas uh our our vector for plague bubonic plague is is fleas and and here again this is another useful point that 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 plague is predominantly uh, an, an animal disease Plague is not predominantly a, a human disease. It only infects humans under rather exceptional circumstances, when when a, an ecosystem, a, a more normal ecosystem uh, among rodents and and microbes, is uh, disrupted. And so, uh, in yeah, order it, to, under-
2: it's, it's endemic here where I live in California. Oh, is and it really? So okay. yes. So they they found it there. Yeah, you oh, don't stick your hand into uh, uh, ground squirrel holes. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, yeah. A few years ago, uh, there were a few cases from Yosemite, uh, Yosemite yes. Park.
1: Yes, they, every every year there's there's a few cases in the in in the U.S. and that's news to me that it's near Sacramento, but it's uh, you know the, the the desert Southwest or or Colorado. These are places where where um, it's a it's a known you know it just just hangs out happily among among prairie dogs and different kinds of squirrels, different kinds of rodents, and even in soil. Uh, plague can can live uh, f- for some periods in burrows, and so it can habit inhabit, inhabit burrows and then kind of uh, be be infected. So, so it because, helps because us.
2: It's, it's a virus, so it can live outside
1: of. Well, well, it's a bacteria, right bacteria, yeah, okay. so we can live outside. Bacteria, of- sorry, yeah, right. yeah. So exactly. Right, so it, it can it can live a, it can live outside. Uh, yeah. On it, on its, on its own, and uh, and the same is true for anthrax, and this was one of the great riddles of the nineteenth century that anthrax can survive for quite a while in a in a kind of spore state, um, and and it it will hang out in soil, and that would essentially contaminate pastures, which was something that uh, really beset European farmers uh, for for many many years, um, and then that that got unravelled in the in the eighteen seventies by Robert Koch, um, among others. And but yeah, I mean, but these, these are all reasons why um, humans have to. We have to think of ourselves as part of a larger story, and and that's one of the challenges with history. Is that going back to the earliest um, histories we have, humans are the agents. I mean, of course, you have d- divine. You know, going back the, the way way back to Herodotus or whatever, you have divine agents as well. But uh, but humans are the protagonists. We are the authors of the story. We place ourselves almost invariably at the center. But if you do that all the time, then you then you don't understand all the causal relationships at, at, at work. And with with plague, this great human killer, arguably the greatest, most impacting disease, you know, in, in recent times, um, you know, humans are bit players in, in the story of plague. And it's like, well, what, you know, what a concept we're on the edge here. And you have to have that, have that sensibility alongside obviously being interested in, in what diseases do, but that's how you get the whole story is that you have to shift your frame of reference.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So the book is organized into about a dozen chapters on specific diseases. Um, And each chapter links the disease to certain historical processes um, so let's go through the history and significance of several of these um, of these diseases, and let, let's start with the rock star of the disease world. You've already talked about it a bit: bubonic plague, um, also known as the the Black Death. Um, so, historically, why is why is plague so significant?
1: I think. Well, I mean, I, I put this in two camps, and, and one is that, it, of course, it had a it had a great demographic and and social significance uh there have been different waves of uh of of plague there was one in the the late late antiquity the one the one that i focus on and where the where the where the notion of black death comes from uh the the, the actual term black death was from the 19th century um it was a, a german german author came up with that but he was referring to the What Barbara Tuckman called the calamitous fourteenth century. So this uh, outbreak of bubonic plague in the thirteen forties, and then in earlier decades, even before that, but thirteen forties in Europe. But then it's for the next three hundred years that you have plague uh, outbreaks, uh, sometimes cyclical, sometimes uh, wave-like, intermittent, but chronic Uh, plague, uh, and the the different and the bacteria being more or less endemic in different parts of Europe and also North Africa and and parts of Asia uh, over, you know, different times and places for the next 300 years. Um, And so it it then, that then flows into the second aspect of plague is not only did it exert long-term demographic and social, you know, uh, impacts, but it also did more than any other disease to shape our notion of what an epidemic is. And it made us think about uh, and as the term implies, an epidemic is an episode. It's something that happens. Uh, plague comes to town and a whole lot of people die and it's very upsetting. And then it's gone. And then maybe it will come back and maybe it won't. Um, but there's, there's a notion of uh, the episodic nature of epidemics. And there have been innumerable books written about plague um, that chart a rise and fall that chart a basic narrative of it's not here it's here and it's horrible what are we going to do what problems does it and issues does it raise and then it's gone and then we're left with the with the aftermath and uh, um this may be ex- extrapolating a bit too much but i think that that kind of rise and fall it's here and not again i think that 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 is something that we wrestle with with covid today as we face as we face an, uh, a disease that it's it's early days yet but we face a disease that that may be with us for a very, very long time, not in the same form and not influencing us in the same way or to the same extent. Obviously, vaccines will have their will have their role to play as well. But it's entirely foreseeable, even if there is a successful vaccine, as there seems to be, um, that that we will that we're not going to have that same kind of here it is we deal with it and then it's gone. Um, that it's more of an ongoing kind of. Uh, kind of thing that uh, is sometimes a step ahead of us and sometimes we're successfully dealing with it. And then it's, then it's on, you know, in the way that influenza is as well. Um, so, so that's a different kind of uh, reckoning with disease. Um, but I think a lot of our notion of what a disease, what a dangerous disease is, is kind of framed by this experience with plague. And so it, 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 it has shaped our mentality, at least in Western communities in a, in a profound way.
2: And especially as now we're seeing with COVID with the genetic drift and the, and the development of new strains, I mean, the South African strain, the English strain, the Brazilian strain, which uh, my wife today said we should start calling the Bolsonaro strain, but
1: um, Uh, she's got got a political agenda there. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. And, and that, that goes back to your, to your, uh, you you know, to your, uh, you know, just chronic nature and, and, uh, you know, it, it, it even if you have successful vaccines, even if even if uh, three billion people are vaccinated, that's, that's another four billion people who aren't. And uh, then it, uh, it, it takes shape in a new form and maybe it's less less uh, amenable to being treated with a vaccine. Uh, so you got to do a new vaccine. So maybe we have successive vaccines. Um, which raises a whole bunch of other other questions about medicine in the marketplace that but it becomes uh, thing other that we're problem.
2: dealing with becomes a thing that we're dealing with for years and a part yes. of yes of our our you know <laughs> we, we should bury this phrase with 2020, but part of our new normal, right?
1: Yes, it's it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 early days, but uh that's entirely foreseeable.
2: Yeah. So getting back to the plague, um the title of your chapter on the plague is Bubonic Plague and the Modern State. So how did the how did the plague influenced the development of modern state systems?
1: Well, um, from, from some of the earliest times, uh, starting with Italian city-states, um, European state entities recognized uh, the, the, the desirability of, of countering plague and, and asserting a kind of communal uh, r- responsibility for, for doing that. And um, certainly in the, in the German cities that that I've that I've researched uh, more fully, um, this was uh, intrinsic to their to their notion. Usually, the notion of a of, of a patrician elite that was in charge of these imperial cities. Um, their idea of of protecting in a in a fatherly way uh, the, the the populace, and uh, that father that parental rhetoric was was very much in, in the in the foreground. In the in the early modern era, in these in these city states, and then it becomes asserted. Then in the 18th century, um, uh, the, the French uh, the French efforts against uh, bubonic plague. In there was a a very dramatic, uh, ultimately short lived but dramatic outbreak in the city of Marseille. Tens of thousands of people died. French government marshaled a Herculean Herculean effort to uh, to to stamp that out. Um, you know, walls and you know, protective uh, quarantine uh, measures. Um, you know, same thing with same thing with cholera, and the, and so 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 states. Uh, you know, assert this, assert this. You know, uh, interest in 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 uh, taking on diseases and uh, creating mechanisms by which this is possible. And so this is uh, goes into a lot of what uh, the legitimizing of, of what modern states do
2: yeah and you've also have a chapter on Rinderpest in the book and I was surprised when I saw that because this is a cattle disease. so what does this have to do with people? Um, why did you include Rinderpest in this chapter and what what is the impact of this cattle disease on uh, on human history?
1: Yeah well it's it's had a it's had a, depending on different times and places a tremendous impact on 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 human history, especially in Africa. Um, and it, uh, I mean, it goes back to this, to what I think we need to do and is important to do now is to understand our human story in relation to, to other animals, other organisms, and to understand ourselves sometimes uh, in our minds as the center of the story, but, but also as part of a, part of a bigger story. And this is also part of a, um, part of a, a movement in public health or in, in medical thinking to shift more towards, uh, what are called one health principles, um, health that uh, stewards the well-being of both humans and animals, because if animals are not doing well, if animals are are sick or somehow not thriving or in, um, you know, uh, warehoused in certain ways or treated with antibiotics in certain ways, that ultimately will have repercussions for human health as well. Um, so so we need to we need to, to you know tell that story differently. And Rinderpest is a great example because of the transformative impact it had in uh, in Africa. Uh, also, to to an extent in the Philippines, but in Africa it was completely transformative. In Eastern Africa, certain certain societies were just never the same after the eighteen nineties when when Rinderpest, so along with other stresses of imperialism and colonization, um, you know, exerted a just horrific impact. People's like the Maasai in the uh, Kenyan Highlands, other um, uh, Barani, uh, all of the, the the different peoples of uh, eastern and then southern Africa. So it's a really uh, it's a really focused way to to reflect on this broader issue. Also, the fact that Rinderpest is related to uh, Trypanosomiasis, which is also sleeping sickness. So there's a chance to to consider diseases in relation to each other because um, sleeping sickness. Uh, this goes back to you know. Uh, being a disease that when cattle are not available, uh, the flies that then spread the pathogens will uh, migrate more towards humans. And so it's a very intricate story, um, but ultimately one that had huge repercussions.
2: And and I found your discussion so fascinating about how tied it is to imperialism. It's brought into um, uh, uh, Northeastern Africa, the Horn of Africa, by, um, I think, was it Italian cattle merchants brought in uh, yes. inf- yeah. infected uh, cattle from, I think, from, from India. So you, you start to see different patterns yes. of imperial globalization. It's, right. it's
1: part of a global system already. Right, Absolutely. and then
2: it spreads yeah. down through the Great Rift Valley, and you've got this beautiful map in the book showing the spread of the disease. And then not only is it introduced by imperialism, but it facilitates imperial expansion as the indigenous societies are devastated Economically, uh, demographically, socially, and I'm sure cultural despair is profound, absolutely, and that facilitates various European powers as they expand in these societies. Made me think of um, Mike Davis's book, uh, Late Victorian Holocaust, Mm -hmm. uh, when he charts um, El Nino phenomenon and the the disruptions there, and how that facilitated various forms of imperial expansion.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the, the very same things were happening in the, in the Philippines. And just as you say, this, this um, period of renderpest was also a, a, an El Nino period. Um, so there were convergent um, ecological crises that, that brought people's worlds to an end. Uh, yep. And it's just, uh, it's really hard to imagine.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, like when I saw Rinderpest, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to read quickly through this one. It's because it's about cattle, but it had so many connections that um, and and it's in the time period that I specialize in too. I just thought it was so, so profound and you did a great job bringing these things together. Um, In your chapter on cholera, you situate the disease in the specific historical context uh, again of imperialism uh, and imperialism's industrialization of transportation networks Patterns of mass urbanization and also climate change. In this case, uh, induced by the eruption of the vulca- uh, volcano in Sumbawa, um, uh, the Tambora. Um, I couldn't help but think of that. This de- disease is like the the emblematic disease of the Anthropocene. Um, could you speak to the history of cholera in these contexts? Uh,
1: well, you know, I th- I think it's really true that um, uh, cholera. It's 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 one of these diseases because it's. Because ultimately, it, it um, you know it, this is another disease that is not just a, a human dis, you know human disease. You know these these organisms, the the, the vibrio uh, that cause cholera. You know they just, they just hang out all over the place in in uh, freely or or more often in, in in plankton and small life called copepods. And so, you, you know th- this this shows us uh, you know fundamental ecosystems, our oceans. Um, evolving in a, in a certain way, um, but then but then you know the uh, the the patterns of climate, which may which impact copepods and and the, the, the uh, cholera uh, the cholera vibrio in, in ways that I don't think people have it all worked out yet. But but you have the inner intersection of climate then with you know uh, industrial or in highly concentrated dense urban settlements. And, and there, the, the spread of it is driven by these distinctive, you know, kinds of human settlement that, that, we, that we have now. And when we consider urbanization, we can think about urbanization as not being just one thing. It's not just big cities, you know, in, mostly in Europe, the way it was in the 19th century. You know, urbanization now is like the, the agglomeration, you know, that's on the mainland near Hong Kong where, uh, you know, there's more people that live in this sort of metropolitan giant, you know, sprawl. There's more people there than live in all of Canada. Uh, You know, it's 38, 40 odd million people who live in a very compressed area. And um, so so this is the kind of thing that, 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 you know, makes cholera a disease of human habitations, the way we live now, but also our, our, our oceans and our ecosystems the way they are now. And, uh, you know, we, we, and we have to, you know, reflect on that. And then, and then of course, there's also the continuing crisis in Yemen where, where there's perhaps half a million people have died from cholera. Um, that was, and that was even a few years ago. So heaven knows what it is now. Um. And uh, you know where it's where it's uh, you know driven by politics as well. So so yeah, cholera is one of these diseases that's kind of a total disease. And as as, as you and I were, were discussing briefly just just before we we began, how cholera shows you stresses, and that a lot of these diseases show you stresses and disruptions. And historians have been really good at understanding these stresses and disruptions locally and in big cities like Hamburg or London or Paris, but we also have to be thinking about these stresses globally and introducing a new variety, new set of considerations as we do that.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think you did a great job laying that out in that, uh, that chapter. Um, both plague and cholera show a tension between two approaches to um, fighting uh, epidemic disease, uh, vaccination versus public health. Um, would you speak to these two uh, different approaches? And I, I think there's a certain degree of resonance right now as as we're in, in the COVID uh, pandemic, we're moving into this period of vaccination, but still important to right. keep public health in mind. And there's even some debate, I mean, some of the brouhaha over the Texas governor um, uh, uh, just a few days ago saying that uh, the public health measures would be over. Um, so right. could, you, could you speak about that distinction between vaccination and public health?
1: Yeah, well it's um uh, gosh, I I guess the, what comes to mind is that is that every every disease poses slightly different slightly different challenges w- with with that. So, I mean, I guess with uh, w- with COVID, yes, we do we do have a vaccination that is that is quite effective, but there is going to be a there's going to be a lag uh, in, in which you know not everybody is vaccinated, and and also there it's an open question as as to whether or not um, the vaccination is going to completely halt the spread of disease, because vaccinations can accomplish different things. Some vaccines are better at stopping you from getting sick in the first place. Uh, some vaccines are good at you know reducing limiting the severity of symptoms, um, and then some vaccines are better at Halt, stopping you from from spreading the disease. Um, and another another disease where this is applicable is polio, which is a which is a disease that uh, that that is still uh, is still hanging on. <laughs> uh, people are doing their best to get rid of it, and polio is doing its best to hang on in little little pockets in Afghanistan and Pakistan and maybe parts of Nigeria. Um, and this is a, this is uh, this was one of the first diseases in the um, where, where certain kinds of polio vaccines are uh, leave open the possibility that, that uh, people will not have severe symptoms, but they will still excrete the virus and then perpetuate the virus to pe- and, and then thereby allow people who have not um, been vaccinated to, to actually catch the virus. And that's what happens when you use uh, attenuated uh, virus, virus that's not completely killed, in your vaccine versus using inactivated or killed virus, and those two kinds of, of uh, vaccines are, are are there for are, are there for polio. Um, so, with respect to you know the give and take between you know vaccines and public health, I mean it, it really um, you know it, it it depends on your vaccine as well. With uh, with plague and with uh, and with cholera, they don't really have. I mean cholera they've got they've got some short term vaccines with, with plague, there isn't really one. And, uh, and so public health measures remain important for, uh, for, for both of these, for both of these diseases. They did try plague vaccines and cholera vaccines, uh, in the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, the, 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 cholera vaccines, you know, seemed, seemed to work sometimes, but ultimately wasn't the, the solution that people hoped, hoped it would be. I'm thinking of, you know, Valdemar Halfkind in, in India. Um, but, uh, but but yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated question. It depends on, it, it depends, gets down to the the nitty gritty of what what the you know the, the capacities are for your vaccine, and uh, and how effective your public health regime is going to be in in given populations.
2: And also, the, just the whole notion of public health is. Uh... It's a different way of thinking about disease than I think many people have. We think about disease as the individual. There is something out there that can make my body sick or something out there that can make my loved ones or my neighbor's body sick, as opposed to something out there that can threaten all of us and that we need Mm -hmm. to behave in a more collective and communal manner Um, and you know, in this age of individualism, I've just been watching yes. some of the, the Adam Curtis documentaries about uh, oh, yeah, the, the age of individualism. And uh, um, I think that, you know, maybe like maybe public health is a harder sell right now because of this, uh, uh, again, age of individualism that we have.
1: Uh, oh, I think you're right, and I think that with with COVID too, it's COVID is is tricky because it doesn't it doesn't affect everybody the same way. It, there's a vast discrepancy in how severe it is, and so um, a lot of, a lot of folks are maybe optimistic in the way that many people tend to be. That oh well, I might get COVID, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get a really Bad case because the odds are that it's going to be someone who is who is um, you know much older and has underlying health problems. They're the ones who are really more susceptible to to severe COVID. And I I mean I have to say and this is a bit of a re- refrain for me that I've I've talked about. I, I think that the fact that COVID uh, has disproportionately affected elders and people who already Uh, to some degree, are already segregated from society. They're not considered to be the most economically productive people. They're frequently segregated physically in in various kinds of uh, assisted living facilities. And so it's a little bit of uh, of out of sight, out of mind. And I compare the um, resistance to COVID vaccination, which I don't know, perhaps it's easy to overstate it. Um, Different contexts may be different. There's actually not a lot of it up here, up, up in Canada, but um, so I can, down, I
2: come down here to the United
1: States. there's, there's, there's ample, I know that there's ample, certainly ample discussion and many people who maybe privately resist even beyond that. But, but I, I consider that vir- versus the, the vaccinations for, for polio in the 1950s, because polio was a disease that Uh, not only struck people in a horrific way, making children essentially, you know, choke to death or or asphyxiate, um, uh, those uh, other severe cases left children with lifelong uh, impairment. Um, And this was something that was absolutely terrifying to people in the 1950s. Um, I think if COVID was affecting children the way that it was affecting older people, I think that there would be a lot less resistance to to, to vaccination. That's uh, strictly intuition on my part, but I, f- I feel like a lot of the initial response to COVID as well shows us something about about uh, at least in North America um, who we are, or what we've become, our circumstances with our w- with our elders, and um, I think it would be very different. It would be a different kind of conversation altogether. If uh, if you know the 500,000 people who've died in the U S and the tens of thousands are in Canada. If, if the majority of those were children, I think it'd be a very different conversation
2: or, or in their twenties and thirties as with the, the, the Spanish flu, which you have a a chapter on. And one of the great things uh, in that chapter that you point out that uh, relates to what you were just saying about the age impact is that um, uh, the, the influenza, it, it, what becomes important is when you're born and you have this, yes. this year, 1968 and uh, I was born in 1967. <laughs> yeah. So I was studying that yeah. graph really hard. Like, where am yeah. I? And, <laughs> mm, <laughs> yes. and, yeah. um, and it's so interesting as we, as you point out in that chapter, um, we oftentimes like with COVID, we're talking about it's how old you are, but you say, Hey, flip that it's when you were born and what yes. you may have been exposed to as a child. Could you say a few words on that?
1: Yes. Oh, well, that's, that's research. Um, there's, there's a group of people, um, Michael Waraby is one of the people, but then there's another person who I think is the lead author on some of the studies for that. Just basically, um, just, it depends on what, what pathogens are, are circulating and what then can engender a, 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 immune reaction in people. And that then, uh, um, you know, m- makes it uh, makes them more resilient against uh, against later pathogens that are in that same family of uh, of uh, of viruses. In the case of in the case of influenza, and so so yes, it, it has to do with what people were exposed to, and uh, where the the great influenza pandemic of 1918 is is concerned, um, a lot of people. Had, uh, mild, uh, had mild had uh, mild apparently uh, infection with a different kind of influenza in the 1890s. What was arguably one of the very first pandemics of, of influenza, at least in modern times, circulated around. Uh, was, it, and,
2: was this the Russian flu?
1: The so-called Russian flu. Okay. Exactly. So-called, yeah. So-called, and yeah. so and so millions, mil- many millions of people. Uh, got uh, uh, you know uh, were exposed to this, and that had the effect. At, at least, so goes the so goes this rather persuasive argument. Uh, had the effect of imprinting their immune system against a certain class of influenza viruses. A certain that a certain kind of uh, profile in terms of the the different kinds of uh, you know the morphology of the proteins on the on the uh, virus's surface. Um, and uh, but then that that meant that there was a mismatch. Going on 25 or 30 years later, there was a mismatch between their immune systems, having been imprinted to one kind one kind of flu, and the kind of flu that was circulating then—the H1N1 uh, uh, that we still sort of are occupied with now—the H1N1 flu that was circulating in 1918, 1919. So this mismatch in uh, between human bodies and the virus then contributed to to, to the to the shift in. Uh, and this goes back to our animals again, you know, animals, pigs and birds are brewing these, uh, brewing these pathogens. And then they come out with different formulas and, and one formula is going to be more or less successful against the sort of antigenic, uh, you know, or antibody ecosystems that it encounters among humans. So it's really fascinating.
2: Yeah. I, I, was I, I found that, uh, chapter fascinating on its own, but also just so important and, in what we're dealing with right now in terms of COVID and its impact on different age groups. Um, let's let's talk about um, something a little different, something something kind of sexy, shall we say. So sure. tuberculosis um, uh, has often been associated with some surprising cultural ideas. Uh, I think of Susan Sontag's, um, I think, just brilliant illness as a metaphor, uh, where she discusses how people with consumption tuberculosis we're yes. seeing it's chic stylish and and even sexy um yes. how did this come to be how did at least in the West and I, and I believe actually you give some evidence either in in China or Japan that the stereotype yes. was there too um that these these sort of surprising subjective, um, notions were put on to people with, uh, tuberculosis.
1: It's so, is so true. And then that, that notion of, of consumptive chic, it's a, yeah. it's a yeah. lovely phrase and that's a, uh, K- Carolyn Day gets credit for that. She's got a book with that title and she, um, basically, and, and others have, have pointed out that uh, I guess there was this, there's this connection between sort of 19th century, you know, I guess we would say, broadly speaking, romantic ideas about one's constitutional makeup, one's personality, one's um, attributes and characteristics, and and uh, and and those attributes sort of overlapped um, a, a so-called artistic temperament or fragile temperament. Um, uh, the notions of what this entailed overlapped with the visual symptoms of, of tuberculosis. And so there were various, um, various examples of, of artists, people who um, uh, John Keats is the, the, the poster child for this a little bit, uh, who, who uh, had consumption and who reflected on consumption and had others reflect uh, about them. About how their how their physical features seem to be emblematic of what their sickness was that that they're and and then if this can bridge into much much broader conversations about how one's physique um, then is is a cipher for one's constitution or one's makeup um, so so it had it had notions of about artistry and fragility and 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 uh, and uh, the evanescence or the te- you know the 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 fleeting quality of life for some people that. Oh, they're 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 here for a brief, vibrant moment, with the the hectic flush of their of their cheeks, and then they're and then they're gone. They fade away, the the way that some people uh, were were deemed to be fading away or withering away because of the the uh, pulmonary effects of pulmonary tuberculosis. Um, these things could all all lend themselves to a particular kind of particular kind of narrative that you know one's tempted to say it was a way of dealing with, uh, you know, these long-term chronic ailments for which there was no, th- there was no, there was no cure. And then, uh, there was, uh, it, there, this was also just as you say, transnational, um, there's a Japanese, uh, Japanese book, the cuckoo, Hototo Jisu, by Kenjiro tokotomi uh, that reflected on this as well. This is a the v- very tail end of the 19th century. Um, But, uh, you know, reflecting, again, these romantic ideas about fragility and fleeting, fleetingness of life and, uh, you know, all, all being sort of, you know, through the prism of tuberculosis, as we would say, or consumption.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, In your discussion of cholera and plague, you note how nationalist rivalries impacted medical research. Um, Famously, Koch and Pasteur were bitter rivals in Europe. And in Hong Kong, tensions between the Swiss-born but French-trained Yersin and uh, Kitasato Shibasaburo, um, who was Japanese but studied in Germany, Um, they served as proxies in this Franco-German Cold War. Mm -hmm. So how did nationalism impact scientific research and epidemic policies?
1: Yeah, well, it's true. And they they, uh, affected both. And this, as I know, this is something that you've you've dealt with at, at, at length in your own work. Um, but, uh, you know, with respect to, to laboratories, you know, the Germans and the French on, you know, way back into the 19th century, they were, they were competing with each other and coach and Pasteur, uh, their, their rivalry um, uh, they, they might've been rivals anyway uh, it, it, because they had complementary but ultimately, ultimately different methods of going at, uh, uh, disease understandings and management, but they were egged on essentially by their nationalist kind of frames that they were, that that they were stuck in and, and their, their respective institutes competed for a generation after, after they were alive. So the Pasteur Institute, and then on down through, uh, eventually the American, the American Rockefeller Foundation and Institute got involved as well in the early 20th century. And so, so the actual laboratories would, would compete and, uh, throw out different research findings and joust with each other over the proper way of doing things and understanding certain problems. And then uh, plague control, um, as, as you well know, this is, this is an, an, arena where different, different national or imperial entities would use, would use plague control in particular and diseases in general as a way of showing off, showing off, you know, what, what they're able, what they're able to do, um, so, so the the uh, Chinese were doing this in in Manchuria during a, a plague outbreak in Manchuria in the 19 teens. Um, uh, certainly, in in different kinds of port cities uh, around the world, the, the, this the, the, this this was taking place. Um, uh, the uh, in the United States, people unfortunately botched it in San Francisco during a during a small plague outbreak in 1900, where there was a. Uh, uh sort of nativist hostility against uh, against chinese individuals but then of course there was um in in uh you you as you know your work with french Indochina and and uh attempting to make hanoi into a kind of colonial show place that's a that's a that's a really interesting case study too
2: yeah absolutely and then uh <laughs> With the with the that plague the third plague pandemic, uh, my hometown of Honolulu also factors into it because yes. when the plague got into the Chinatown in downtown Honolulu, um, it it was set fire and burned down. Yes. and there's debates on how intentional that was, but it happened and it was the fire was started by the Howley the white authorities. And in San Francisco, they started talking about the Honolulu solution. And they started openly talking about burning down Chinatown in the middle yes. of San Francisco. I mean, it is, it is really, you know, in, in response to plague, you start to get into these really sort of necro political, uh, uh, logics, um, that are fascinating. But, that, um, is,
1: you know, that is, that yeah. is such an interesting example. And I've seen pictures of that Honolulu, had that Honolulu fire. The, the fire is yeah. terrifying.
2: Yes. It's, Amazing. That's, that's my hometown. I know there's still some of the buildings around there that have survived. And, um, I you know I, I know those streets I mean I used to as a kid I used to skateboard through there and uh yeah. and just to uh, see that uh those images of those black and white images of that neighborhood on fire it's just it's just it has, this is a very strong emotional response from me um I was also wondering about the the role of nationalism uh in understanding uh disease the the Swadeson the so-called Spanish flu did not originate in Spain uh, and a few minutes ago, I said the Russian flu, and you're like, "Well, it's the so-called Russian flu." That's right? what everyone calls it. Yeah, so you know. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then French, Italians, and English called syphilis after their various right. rivals, right? Um, and my own work, I've looked at sinophobia and the third plague pandemic, Absolutely. and the way in which Absolutely. Chinese bodies and China was vilified um, uh, for its association with the plague, and and more recently, Trump. Uh, has deployed racist rhetoric when discussing COVID nineteen. Could you say a few words on how this this sort of impacts um, the discourse around disease?
1: Yeah, well, this is part of that same you know conversation with uh, with Chinatowns. You know, p- pointing uh, you know having having a look at people who are who are who are culture- culturally different and staking out a certain kind of certain kind of identity and certainly just as you were saying this this goes this goes way back that back in the in the 1500s you know europeans blaming uh you know the 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 pox on 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 each other um spanish spanish flu uh you know the the spanish just got just got uh you know hit because they were being honest uh the, the the spanish were neutral formally in world war one. And so they, they had greater license, uh, to report on what was actually happening. And so the, you know, the, the French, the Germans and the English and the Americans were completely mum on this terrible, terrible, uh, in the context of
2: world war one, they didn't want to report because that would
1: be
2: show a weakness. Okay. Absolutely.
1: And, and so, but, but the, the, the Spanish journalists did not have the same concern and so they reported from the spring of, of 1918 on 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 the problems they were they were having and so therefore it was called spanish flu because that's where it was uh, reported first um for for you know for for folks in the 20th century and, and even today i mean i mean i think part of part of the issue is um is, it comes down in part to a sense of, of of citizenship and membership in a particular society and who belongs and, and this notion of sanitary citizenship that, um, as, as, as you very well know, this was something that uh, was very much part of the conversation in in, uh, in Western, but also colonial cities and ports and different kinds of outposts where people w- were wrestling with different communities living together. And the Chinatowns is a great example. Vancouver, Victoria, San Francisco, Honolulu. These are places where where Chinese people were deemed to be deemed to have different sanitary standards. Um, and of course, this was in, in large measure driven by the fact that some of these folks were impoverished or they were isolated from their families and therefore just had different domestic arrangements than, than, uh, than the quote-unquote traditional family. Um, but, but it, it raised the question of, of what does it mean to be a sanitary citizen? What does it mean to have membership uh, as, as someone who is clean? And uh, we can see the same thing with U.S. imperialist aspirations in the Philippines, where uh, the sanitary project was an intrinsic part of the U.S. imperial uh, a- activity there. And then, of course, the, the the flip side of citizenship is 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 imperialism. And the 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 uh, you know how do we convey our, our our hygiene principles to to peoples abroad? So the the U.S. again. Or uh, peoples in Africa. Um, how do we how do we turn our subject peoples into sanitary citizens? Uh, the British in India. Uh, there were protests during during the plague uh, outbreaks in India in the 1890s, early 1900s, which were plague was horrible in India. Millions of deaths attributed to plague. We'll never know how many. Um, and and the British, you know, imposed. Various sanitary regimes, on the assumption that 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 uh, sanitary citizenship had to be had to be enforced, and if it couldn't be enforced, it would be imposed. Um, so 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 this then you know creates grounds for all sorts of nationalist rhetoric, and uh, uh, you know Trump had a Trump had a very tried and true playbook. Um, to 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 refer from, uh, along with a more modern anxiety around laboratories and nefarious sites of uh, of uh, you know nefarious you, you know where bad things are happening uh, under cover of darkness. You have uh, you have you know pathogens being concocted that either intentionally or not they, they, the genie gets out of the bottle. Um, Edward Hooper made a similar uh, allegation about U.S research into polio uh, and try to con- connect this you know in this uh, tortured argument to to the origins of HIV um, mm-hmm. so, so yeah there, there's there's different ways that these that nationalist agendas can be can, can be harnessed
2: yeah which which feeds right into questions of race I mean I in in both my own life and in my research I've seen um, again this this association of Chinese with disease. So um, growing up in Honolulu, one of the one of the uh, local terms for leprosy was the pake disease. and pake is a derogatory Hawaiian and, and pidgin word for Chinese. So mm-hmm. pake disease was uh, was leprosy. And then my research, um, one of the things I found is that after the Russo-Japanese war, which is in some ways Japan's coming out party, and they now mm-hmm. get to yes. be up there with the imperialist nations. Right. Um, they renegotiated various diplomatic arrangements. And what that meant on the ground is that when a ship arrived in the port of Haiphong in colonial Andoshin, um, there are two lines for health inspections. Mm-hmm. One is for Asians and one is for white folks. Yes. And after that, those uh, renewed diplomatic arrangements, the Japanese got to go in the line for white folks because they were – they were Asian, but now they were they were white Asians, and, and yeah. were very very proud oh, of that, and very insistent upon it. And I found a case where a where a Japanese citizen was forced to go in the other line, and he was incensed, mm-hmm. and it became a big diplomatic brouhaha because of the treatment of Chinese was was really so demeaning in that time period. So, That's can you speak to the relationship between race and disease, and I think maybe yellow fever? Is one of the best examples here, but of course, HIV/AIDS, as you discuss towards the end of the book, is also very much tied to race and racism.
1: Sure. Well, uh, you know, going back to the to the nineteenth century, uh, or even perhaps before, you you know, yellow fever in in European imaginings, this was a a tropical disease. You know, this is a disease that belongs to an environment that is that that is different from from the, the the European. Disease or the European landscapes, and so when Europeans uh, went, a, went abroad as as uh, conquerors or settlers, they immediately registered that that the that the ecosystems were were, were different, um, and that you know the flora, the fauna, everything was different, and that the people were different as well, and that and that there was this there was this sense that um, you, you know where you're from is determinative of, uh, of, of your characteristics, including your, uh, resistance or susceptibility to various diseases. And this was part and parcel of environmental thinking that was really very strongly, um, sort of you know in the foreground for, for 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 Europeans and they were taking a note from Hippocrates basically another Hippocratic writer basically made this argument that people's that that geography is destiny in a sense in terms of your physiology and your and your you know disease susceptibility. What was interesting with yellow fever is that there was um, f- from from the European standpoint there was some basis for this uh, because um, many. Many people of African descent, uh, either Africans in Africa, at least in West Africa, or in the Caribbean, they had yellow fever, uh, they contracted yellow fever as children, and yellow fever happened to be a disease that if you got it as a kid, you were much more likely to survive it, and the 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 unfortunates who didn't, you know, just didn't survive, and so um, Europeans then would, as adults, if they go to the Caribbean, say, uh, Caribbean islands, they would encounter um, uh, populations of African descent or mixed afro-caribbean descent uh, who who in large measure really were uh, resistant to uh, yellow fever but this was this was not something to do with their their physiology or their inherent constitution it was an acquired immunity it was simply the accident of having contracted this disease as children um, and uh, so so this dynamic of acquired immunity versus versus uh you know other kinds of you know I guess to put it in our framework, genetic immunity, which is a lot less common, less well understood, but also less common. Well, you know, th- this escaped Europeans entirely, so it was it, they they were able to have a have a more racialized view of uh, of, um, of of that, and uh, so, so yeah, that that was one of the things that fl- that uh, flowed into the racial thinking. Nineteenth century slave owners could still believe that oh well. Um, uh africans or african americans are better suited to farm work because they're just innately suited to to this kind of climate and this kind of this kind of labor so it was a kind of rationalization that you know when in different contexts would be turned on its head when it when it suited imperialists uh you could just as easily argue that uh that it, that uh africans were more susceptible to certain diseases uh because of uh limitations of their bodies it just all depended on on, on what was, what was at work and, and to some extent, what was it advantageous to argue?
2: How about, how about um, issues of race in response to HIV AIDS in the 1980s, yeah. 1990s?
1: Yeah. Well, well, again, I mean, that's, and this is a disease that's, uh, you know, g- g- has gotten traced back to, to exchanges between humans and, and animals in a particular context. And because um, HIV AIDS was discerned as having come out of this particular context. It, it then uh, seemed to be a very logical step, I guess, for, for, for some people to 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 view it as a, as a disease that was somehow intrinsically related to to the you know the, the limitations or the characteristics of of African peoples. Now, you know, in the in the, in the U.S. is certainly you know very well that it, it wasn't originally this way. In the mid '80s, in the U.S., it was a quote unquote gay disease. Um, so it, it didn't; it wasn't figured that way at all until, until uh, African, uh, Af- the African AIDS pandemic really began to gain momentum, and people began to think about AIDS in a in, in a in a different way. And and the the, the tragedy of that is that it, that it was always possible for mainstream uh, North American and to some extent European audiences; it was always possible to point to point at someone else. Oh, it's it's. People who, for whatever reason, are not in the mainstream of of those who we deem to be central in our society, and so it became possible to really ignore um, all the, the the different ways that HIV/AIDS can spread, and to understand this virus as an indiscriminate uh, as an indiscriminate force that that affects everybody, all kinds of bodies, the same way. But it but it wasn't it wasn't figured that way for a long time.
2: Absolutely. And I have, I have a former graduate student of mine who's now working on his PhD, um, give a shout out to him, Antoine Johnson, who's um, doing a study of um, HIV AIDS in um, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area community. Mm. And specifically, mm-hmm. he's looking at the impact on black female sex workers Oh yes. who were just written oh, out of I the narrative imagine. at the time. Yeah. And he um he recently gave an interview on the public radio at KQED where he talked about the um uh the way in which they were, you know, completely marginalized, completely invisible. And importantly, the uh disease vector was oftentimes white male clients yes, who were so. um, paying for sex with them. And um they, you know, they they sort of factored into the radar screening in, in Got health treatment, but these women are completely marginalized and had to self-organize. It's some really promising work, so I'm looking forward to seeing what he produces. Um, could you say a few more words on some of the other um, sexually transmitted diseases or sexually transmitted infections, as STDs or STIs, um, like like syphilis and AIDS, and and the link uh, between disease and human sexuality, and and how did um, Various cultural reactions uh, relate to these diseases, and how did how did morality complicate medicine?
1: Yeah, well, it gets it, it, it's it, it's uh, you know the, the sexually transmitted infections. I guess they get charged because they, you know, they re- they relate to intimacy, and then and then also depending on the circumstance, they they are re- related uh, to to concealment, and this was especially true in. In 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 England, going going way back, you know, Shakespearean times, as you know, my, my book gets into this just a little bit. How how you you know the the suspicion of those who, uh, you know, beneath the belt, let's say, actually are concealing various kinds of you know malevolent forces in in their bodies, and so there there could be um there could be a a, a kind of you know misogynous tinge to this. Uh, once uh, again, just as you were saying, sex workers. Uh, being being ignored, um, disregarded you know through the centuries uh, or or even worse yet being targeted as the as the re- the repository for this poison or these or or this disease as opposed to people who are equally susceptible as as, as human beings. Um, it's really with syphilis, it's really interesting in a colonial context because um, and this gets into some really tricky tricky area, but uh, but syphilis, you know, the, the, you know, we understand it as a bacterial infection caused by spirochetes. That's the kind of, kind of pathogen. Well, there are several different spirochetes that are extremely closely, you know, related or in similar in their morphology, almost indistinguishable from a genetic standpoint, but there's, um, there's uh yaws and, and pinta as well as, uh, as well as syphilis and yaws, uh, less so, but, to an extent to this day is still a, a disease that, uh, can, can uh, infect people that, you know, morphologically this, this pathogen is almost indistinguishable from syphilis, but, you know, it causes similar kinds of, of deformities. Um, and so when in the early 20th century, Europeans observed the consequences of yaws, this was one of the things that then, uh, they, they, uh, believe that they attributed this to a susceptibility uh, of Africans, uh, people of African descent to uh, syphilis, even though the people who get yaws do not get it as a sexually transmitted infection. Um, and so even when there was a test, the so-called Wasserman test from 1905 and the successive tests thereafter, um, not able to, to, to differentiate between yaws and syphilis. And so you have the, you know, the, you know, the sort of the broad brushstrokes, uh, of uh, looking at all these diseases in the same way, and then and then looking at um, Africans through the prism of sexually transmitted infections, and and uh, deeming Africans to have a proclivity to this kind of you know this kind of whole cluster of things, sex and sexually transmitted infections, and this then flows a little bit into the Tuskegee syphilis study as well, looking at African American males and looking at their how uh, looking at how their bodies. Um, deal with syphilis over a very long period, over four decades, as as it was, and it would have gone longer had not the study been halted. Um, so, so you know, the the sexually transmitted infections, they, you, you know, they they pull out all sorts of, uh, you pull out all sorts of of, of underlying sort of, uh, you, you know, imbalances in power or stereotypes that uh, societies are enabled to have because of the power differentials that there are.
2: Absolutely. And, and I think that notion of concealment and, um, uh, that being in shame, being an impediment, uh, for, um, the individual with the infection to seek medical help is just so important and makes that disease distinguishes that disease from those diseases from so many others. Um, so you've been really generous with, with your time. Um, and I greatly appreciate that, but I've got just two more questions before I let you go. Um, First can you recommend two books for listeners
1: Of course and I'm I'm going to going to ask your indulgence and really quickly recommend three. Um, <laughs> this, just, this happens every, every interview. Well, I'm but sure it on, does. Yeah. I'm sure. This, uh, I this can't is imagine. the problem
2: with interviewing professors. They ask just, people that recommend two, and they,
1: we have a nervous breakdown. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, but but one of the books, just, just in passing, because it, it helps me to make a point, uh, uh, Robert Peckham's Epidemics in Modern Asia, which is a very nice book that I think you uh, no no better better than I and um,
2: yeah the reason I great, want to mention he's a, he's a great scholar yeah go yeah on.
1: and and, is it, and I don't know if he's still in Hong Kong but um, but uh, th- this book and I, I mentioned this book because it it's it, it's also uh, my way of, of gesturing to a scholarship that is from a different tradition than the one that, that I traditionally work in and I and I'm aware that I approach my my topic as a European historian. And, and the examples and my methods and and the and a lot of the things that I the way I go about things would be done and the whole story would be told perhaps quite differently um, by uh, by an, an Asian historian or someone from an Asian community, and so I so I, I wanted just to mention that book just as a as a reference to the to the big world of scholarship that's that's beyond what I've done. Um, and it, was, it was Robert
2: Peckham, Epidemics in Modern Asia.
1: Yes, I believe yeah. that's the title. Okay. That's the title, um, okay. and then uh, and then there are two other the, the two other books that I I can uh, I can um, lift up here. One is uh, a, a book by Bruce Campbell, and it's called "The Great Transition: Climate, Disease, and Society in the Late Medieval World" from 2016. And um, this this book is uh, is a really uh, one of, one of the great appeals of it. Simply is that it thinks big. It thinks globally about plague, and it thinks about plague in reference to, to, the, to the big forces of, uh, of economy, but also of climate. Um, and he, he uh, bases an argument on some very innovative and interesting uses of all sorts of data. Um, although he himself, by training, was an economic historian, he branched out in a really insightful and provocative way. Into a more scientifically based literature, um, it's a book that that uh, even in even in five years, you know, new findings have come online to sort of supplement or to tweak what he has to say about the origins of plague. Um, there are people who debate with him about the about the way that he con- constructs his climate arguments. Nonetheless, um, as as a book, you know, for its for its ambitions and its method, it shows how different kinds of historians and different kinds of scientists can work together. And I think that's, it's extremely appealing and exemplary in that way. Um,
2: Give us the the author of the title one more time.
1: Yes, of course. It's uh, Bruce Campbell. And then Campbell is C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. And uh, the great transition climate disease and society in the late medieval world. And uh, at least recently he had uh, a, a wonderful, it was either a lecture or a series of lectures that was online that oh. basically outlines this book. And I, am I'm, I'm thinking that if, if your listeners just simply Google Bruce Campbell, the great transition, um, it's, it's likely if they just play around just a little bit that they would, they would get lectures that, that right. are related to this, that were very well done. Yeah. But uh, make
2: sure you get the book title in there. Cause you don't, you don't want to wind up with Bruce Campbell, um, evil dead.
1: Okay. So and he he does have he does have middle initials as well. Bruce MS Campbell. So there you go. That's right. We other, need to we all need to do that. Some of my favorite
2: horror films, but okay. Now, <laughs> now your indulgence. What's your what's your third?
1: So then the then the other book is uh by Jacques Pepin. Uh the last name is P E P I N and uh, he's a he's a Canadian author. Um and a Canadian uh, a physician by training, but then also, uh, I think in this book, quite an astute historian, The Origins of AIDS from 2011. Um, and, and this is just a, this is a book that, um, I, I mean, it, it's a very, uh, so for some of your, for some of your listeners and readers you know, it's, it, it doesn't spare much detail in terms of the science. He gets into the genetics of, of the origins of AIDS, but he also worked as a clinician in Africa, um, and so he brings a clinician's sensibility to an historical story and uh, his, I think his passion for his patients and for the people who have con- contracted AIDS, uh, HIV AIDS, uh, it, it, it comes through and uh, it really shows how a clinician uh, has taken it on himself to, to, to do history in a very insightful way. And it shows that the, that the history really does inform our understanding of how, how this, how this tragic, you know, disease and this ongoing pandemic, um, how history can be brought to bear on these questions. And so uh, again, it's, it's what, what he's doing and his and the spirit he comes from that I think is, is worth kind of celebrating as much as the book itself. And that is the origins of AIDS by Jacques Pepin from 2011. Excellent.
2: I'll look for those. Um, And well, you know, you cheated and did three, so I'm going to do some <laughs> unprecedented. I'm going to throw out a book. Normally, normally the the episode is, is your book is the book, but there's a here's here's a, one more, and it's um Mike Davis, um who uh, over a decade ago wrote The Monster at the Door, the threat of avian flu, which he has since revised and re released as The Monster Enters, COVID nineteen, avian flu, and the plagues of capitalism. Mm. And Mike Davis is one Mm. of my one of my intellectual heroes. And and he puts a Marxist critique on the threat of um, epidemic disease and links um, uh, threats of avian flu to practices such as factory farming in particular. Yes. 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 uh, Such such an important factor.
1: Yep. So, and that's so, the thing factory farming is a big, and this is something that uh, I discuss rather rather in passing but mm-hmm. it comes in in my renderp chapter yep. factory farming is you know this is one of those ecosystems where humans have created humans have created you know laboratories where diseases are manufactured we just call them we just call them you know factories right right so, yeah Fantastic. So, okay absolutely. so
2: listeners you've got a you've got a solid syllabus from us. Um, yeah, you now have five books to go get. Um, now, finally, what are you working on uh, now and what could we hope to see from you next?
1: Well, I still have a, I still have a, a hand or maybe just a couple of fingers in, uh, in early modern Europe, sort of more short articles, but in terms of my, the, the big project, um, I've, uh, I've agreed to do another book for, for, uh, the university of Toronto press, uh, sort of, a a, a history of, of modern medicine. So from, uh, I'm, I'm, Probably just going to go from the late 18th century to the to the present, um, and it will. Uh, although it will be another survey type book, it's. Uh, I envision that one to be a little bit less uh, textbooky, as it were. Um, Epidemics in the Modern World has uh, uh, documents and discussion questions and is very explicitly framed as a textbook. And uh, and uh, the uh, the book on on global medicine or on medicine in the modern world. I'm still playing exactly with how to frame it, but. It's going to be a. It's going to be another kind of survey that, hopefully, also will will contribute in a scholarly fashion into to telling the story of the history of medicine in a different way. And it's uh, it's really I think ripe to be to be rethought and you know just by by many different people um, because we we still have a have a sense of medicine as it unfolded in Europe, and that is our kind of template for then taking that Europe European medicine becomes imperial medicine and what happened there you know we need to kind of redraw the, redraw the landscape. And I'd like to, I'd like to contribute to that. And I think that our world, um, you know, we can, we can all try and shuffle that deck a little bit differently. And especially with COVID showing us, showing us what go, what global medicine is Uh, these vaccines, they are, you know, what else, what else would they be if they're not global medicine in a sense, you know, globally spread and what does that mean? How does that all happen? And where did that come from? So uh, that's not the idea I had when I, Began thinking about the book, but that's part of the thinking now. Um, COVID is changing lots of things, and it's certainly being uh, being formative for me.
2: Fantastic. Well, University of Toronto did a beautiful job with this book, uh, Epidemics in the Modern World. They I mean, really it, did. It, is just, it is just a really gorgeous looking book, and it it does some really great things. I mean, with the the color scheme and so forth, and is laid out so beautifully. And 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 I I I I, I I think you're slightly underselling it by keep saying that you did it as a textbook, because I think it is really, as I said, an essential primer for all historians today, because we really need to work discussions of disease into our classes. And um, I've, I've been saying this for years. Finally, thanks to COVID, people are starting to come around and say, yeah, we need to do this. So Mitchell Hammond, thank you so much for
1: talking with us today. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a great pleasure.
2: Yeah. So this has been a conversation with Professor Mitchell L. Hammond of the University of Victoria about epidemics in the modern world out in 2020 with University of Toronto Press. A Chinese language edition will be published this coming October, October 2021, with Chongqing Publishing and Media. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.